Again, God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who are those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. So what's your worst feeling? That is the pain that you hate the most. For we all have unpleasant feelings, none of which are fun, but we like some, or we dislike some pains more than others. For example, smashing your thumb smarts, but being stuck in the backseat of a car while carsick, this can feel suffocating. You may prefer to be overly hot or rather to be too cold. Then there's indigestion and migraines. You can also compare physical pain to emotional and social discomfort. A broken arm can be agonizing, and yet the torment of a shattered heart registers often higher on the pain scale. To feel lonely, rejected, unloved, stabs us in the unpleased places of the soul where medication so often cannot reach. Anxiety can be more incurable than cancer. Of course, not all anxieties are created equal. Being nervous about public speaking is not the same thing as fretting that you may get fired. And there is one anxiety that stands above all the other anxieties as it's found in every culture and in each period of history. It affects men as equally as much as women. It preys on kids, teenagers, and grandparents. And this dominating anxiety is one that humanity cannot escape from. But it's one that Christ has provided for us a deliverance. So the author of Hebrews has spent a decent stretch lauding Jesus Christ as the son who is greater than the angels. With a baker's dozen of Old Testament citation, he displayed before our hearts the superiority of the son. And this was done in part to nip in the bud any unhealthy interest or reverence in angels that the saints of this congregation might be uh, tempted by. And yet with the divinity of the Son firmly set, another objection simmers to the surface. The Son is fully God, and he's been exalted on high. Okay, clear enough. But then the author's argument progresses to reveal how the Son was made a little lower than the angels for a time. Especially the glorious Christ even tasted death for everyone. And this truth has the potential to be downright offensive. For one, in the Greco-Roman world, gods were defined as those who were immortal. Now, in the Greek myths, there are a handful of gods who did perish, 
But those deaths or defeats were definitely not a positive. A dead God was a great shame. More importantly, though, there is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Old Testament orthodoxy is crystal clear. The Lord cannot suffer, nor can he die. It's unthinkable that the self-existent and eternal creator of heaven and earth could be touched by death or suffering. And yet Hebrews vividly defends the Son as the exact essence of God, who was then subjected even to death. For a good student of the Old Testament, heresy alarms are going off. How can this be? Well, the author anticipates this objection, or at least confusion, as he now continues to explain and defend the humiliation of the Son. The Son of God gagged upon that bitter poison of death. But this doesn't seem kosher. And so the author continues first by laying out the goal. What's the point of the son submitting to the grave? Well, God ordained it in order to bring many sons to glory. Now, sons here is inclusive. It covers both men and women. But sons were those who inherited back in the day. Thus, God's purpose was to adopt for himself many children to make them heirs and to grant them the promised land of glory. Now, this, of course, refers to you, to all of you who rest upon Christ in faith alone. So this borderline offensive and seemingly unorthodox truth about the divine son dying serves the purpose, the goal of your glorification. Very blessed and noble indeed. And yet, in order to do this, it was fitting that God perfect the founder of our salvation through suffering. Christ dying may feel unfitting, improper, or dishonorable to the average human mind. In fact, in the first century, it was considered rude and distasteful to even mention crucifixion in polite, respectable company. But our manners are not God's. What we may find ill-mannered, vulgar, or unbecoming, the Lord may judge to be classy and civil. Therefore, the etiquette of the Almighty determined that it was gracious and courteous to perfect our Savior through the angst of death. But how in the world is the Son being perfected? The author just magnified the Son as the radiance of God's glory. There's no perfecting the thrice holy majesty of God. Well, the sense of perfection here is taken from the Old Testament. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, the word for perfecting was used for ordaining the Aaronic priest to make them holy servants. The meaning of perfecting here is to qualify for office, to ordain, and to consecrate. It communicates the granting of attributes or experiences in order to perform the office. And it bestows a new status as holy unto God. Perfecting, then, is not moral here, but it's vocational and experiential. That is, there's nothing lacking in Christ's moral righteousness or his moral goodness. Yet in terms of his job of salvation, he needed to be equipped and set apart for the high task. This is kind of like job training. 
In order to start a new job, you first need to get fitted for the uniform, get certified for some special skills, go through security clearance, and sign all the legal paperwork. Well, so also to become our Savior, Jesus had to be consecrated and qualified, which happened through suffering. His agony unto death is what made Jesus eligible and licensed to be the founder of our salvation. And by founder, the author here drops another multi-layered term upon us. For the word for founder here includes the base layer of someone who is a leader, a prince, or a chieftain. On top of this is a layer of authorship and originator. That is, he fashioned our salvation to bring it into existence. And on top of this, there's an icing of model and example. The one who goes before to blaze a trail for others to follow him. A more encompassing translation would be the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus is the pioneer of our redemption. That is, he was made like us to go before us to open up the gates of salvation for us to pass through. As pioneer, Jesus made smooth that rough Oregon trail to glory so that we might skate through by grace. For as he says next, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. Being qualified and perfected in his office as priest, Jesus then is the sanctifier. He's the one who makes us holy so that we become sanctified. And yet the sanctifier and the sanctified need an organic unity. We need to be connected in similarity. Hence, as the author says, both have the same source, which is God the Father. Jesus is the Son to pioneer salvation for the many sons who are being brought to glory. God elected us as sons to be sanctified unto heaven, so Jesus became the Son to purify us in his holiness. It's for this reason, then, that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. Because God appointed us as sons, and because Christ was made like us through suffering, he's not afraid or not ashamed that we are his siblings. And if you think about this, what a profound truth this is. For what does it mean to acknowledge someone else to be your sister or brother? What's the effect of being too ashamed to claim another person. Well, to claim another is your willingness to be associated with them, to be known by them. If you say, that's my boss, this echoes with honor. She is my wife, reverberates with affection and healthy pride. But to deny a relationship is a grievous blow. If you say about your favorite football team, he's not my quarterback, This means you're ashamed of his quarterbacking, you want him gone from the team, and he's not even worthy enough to be associated with you. Imagine your mom saying, that's not my kid. Well, because Jesus is our sanctifier and pioneer through suffering, he's not ashamed to say about you, that's my brother. She is my sister. The generosity of this is a touch overwhelming. Sure, we don't want to be, or others to be ashamed of us, but few pains hurt more sharply 
than to have a loved one disown you. But deep down, we know that we are shameful. On the outside, we clean up pretty good. But on the inside, we are a toxic waste dump. If other people knew your inside thoughts, no one would claim us. If your mother knew your secret lust, she'd burn your birth certificate. That's not my kid. Well, Jesus knows all your inside thoughts. He can see your darkest desires as if in broad daylight. Christ is all too familiar with the foul depravities that haunt our souls. And yet where any normal person would say to us, I never knew you get away from me, Jesus announces loudly about you, that's my bro, she's my sis. And to prove this unbelievable claim, the author cites two Old Testament texts. First, from Psalm 22, that famous song, the Jesus psalm that Jesus took upon his lips when he died upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the author quotes the verse at the transition point of the psalm between the suffering of the psalmist and his vow to praise God. Thus, having suffered, Jesus proclaims God's name to us as his brethren. Christ honored and praises God to us so that we might know him as our God. Next, he cites or refers to Isaiah 8, verses 17 through 18. Now, the context here is that God told Isaiah to wait for the coming deliverance. But this would come only after a season of upheaval, suffering, and judgment. Thus Isaiah confesses in chapter 8, I will trust in God, both I and the children given to me by God. Thus Isaiah and his rugrats will rest and wait upon the Lord to bring them through the deep waters of tribulation to the sandy beach of life and worship. Well, with these words, well, these words more naturally fit upon the lips of Jesus. He is the one who trusted the Father to bring him through the crucible of the cross. And with him, Jesus carried his children, you and I. Now, the imagery shifts here from us being the brothers of Christ to being the kids of Christ. But this mixing of metaphors shouldn't bother us as it's employed to accent the family bond between us and Jesus. We are his siblings, we are his kiddos, the family bond or unity is doubly sealed. That what is particularly delicious about this presentation of Christ from the Old Testament is that he stands as our worship leader. As it says, in the midst of the congregation, which is the covenant community of the redeemed, consecrated, as a worship assembly. This is what we do every Lord's Day, and this is our everlasting destination in glory. But Jesus stands among us as our elder brother and as our worship leader. He is our music director as he leads us in a four-part harmony unto God the Father. Christ selects the hymns, he sounds the right key, and he conducts us as his choir and symphony. Now, this may seem weird at first. Jesus is our worship leader? But Christ Jesus is the one we worship along with the Father and the Spirit. 
We sing to Jesus, not with him. But this is the twofold role of Jesus, very much similar to that of prayer. That is, we pray to Jesus, but Jesus also helps us to pray to the Father. Likewise, as God, we worship Christ. But as the pioneer who went before us, Jesus teaches us how to sing to the Father. As the sanctifier, Jesus tunes our voice to stay on key. He trains our faith so that our praise is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Of course, to teach us how to sing, Jesus had to become like us. He had to take on our vocal cords in order to recalibrate our concophonous noise into the melody of, of holiness. Jesus had to become like us to transform us to be like him. And chief in this resemblance is our mortality. We are flesh and blood. Cut us deeply and we bleed out. Deprive us of air, water, or food, and life departs from our bodies. Flesh is soft and fragile. Blood is limited. Spill it and it's gone. Blood and flesh encompass all that is weak, temporal, and frail about us. Even though God created flesh and blood as good and beautiful, in the fall, our mortality is the flashpoint of the curse. Our short shelf life embodies our guilt, our shame, and our condemnation. Well, in order to deliver us from this body of death, Jesus had to take it to himself. It was necessary for him to share in our same blood and flesh. The glory of the infinite Son partook in our mortality. The massive power of the Son in an itty-bitty package. Now, on a good day, we are rather fond of our bodies. We love to eye the beauty of others. But compared to heaven, our bodies are rather pathetic. When cancered and constipated, we curse our flesh and blood. Surely this Corrupted and flimsy flesh is too shameful for the Son of God to share in. What majestic king would choose to sit on an ash heap half-naked like Job? Well, Jesus did. In becoming human, he willingly submitted himself to headaches, bad breath, and a sore back. And why? Why would the magnificent Son share in our smelly bodies. Well, he did so that by his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Of course, how does the devil have the power of death? Well, first of all, this power is not Satan's intrinsically. Instead, it's one permitted him. God allowed the evil one to wield the battle axe of death for a time. Second, the devil exercises this power through temptation and transgression. As he controls us by sin and evil, so he keeps us under the condemnation of death. Satan reigns over our ruin. He tempts us to sin, he charges us as transgressors, and so he seals us under the curse of death. The tyranny of death lied in oppressive hands of the devil. 
to be delivered then from our mortality, to be rescued from death, the devil needs to be defeated. And this Christ did by becoming a human and dying. In his death, Jesus destroyed the devil and liberated us from death's depotism. In fact, the imagery here used by the author echoes that of Hercules defeating Hades. Yes, in that well-known myth, the hero god Hercules punched Hades for victory and to free some from the underworld. Yet the fiction of Hercules is a historical fact with Jesus. Christ is the hero who threw down the Lord of death to lead forth a host of captives unto the liberty of life. Though any resemblances between Jesus and Hercules only highlight more the differences. With his godlike strength, Hercules was quite alien to humans. He was a superman from another planet. With his bulging muscles and astounding power, Hercules claimed his crown. Jesus, though, vanquished the dark lord by dying. He won by frail mortal flesh. He conquered by submitting to the weakness of the icy kiss of the death dementor. This is utter foolishness to the world. But in the wisdom of God, this is our victory for life. By death, Jesus destroyed the power of death, the devil. But how does this work? How can death defeat death? How can a mortal rescue other mortals? Well, the solution to this riddle is multifaceted. And one of the secret ingredients to this answer, we'll drill down more next week. But an essential element in the answer belongs to the biblical truth that like saves like. Remember the Old Testament. To be cursed by those or to be cured by those deadly vipers, Moses made a serpent and Israel had to look on the bronze snake. To heal bitter waters, Elijah Elisha added salt. To save us humans ultimately took another human. Thus Jesus destroyed death by death and he liberated us from the lifelong slavery of death. And with this, the author puts his finger on the anxiety above all anxieties, the fear of death. Indeed, there's no other anxiety that pains us, which is so universal and persuasive as the phobia of death. If you think about it, a good portion of all human culture and society in every time and place in history is the attempt to assuage our dismay at death. People will drown themselves in pleasure and partying as if to forget death. Money and riches are pursued to Buy off death. Kings build monuments to be remembered forever. Parents have more kids to pass on their names after death. Every generation has its fountain of youth quest. Indeed, today, there are some who go by the term the techno-utopians. Those who dream that technology will beat death and make us live forever. 
And yet, besides all this, you also have felt this miserable angst in your own chest, the nervousness of death. This wretched reality haunts and hounds us that we too will die. We will leave this wonderful and horrible world, which is all we know, to pass in the dark unknown. We feel nauseous. Our hands shake. Stronger than any chain, more cruel than any whip, is the bondage to death depression. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Well, Jesus Christ did. And he did by tasting death. Christ liberated us from the fear of death by sensing that same distress in his heart. By sweating blood, Jesus shivered in the apprehension of death. The dread of death in all its naked terror stabbed the soul of our Savior. And because Jesus felt your pain, your anxiety, because he was depressed but our same fear of death, he freed you from slavery to death. Because the Son of Man, because the Son became a man, since he took on our mortality and died for us, Christ freed us forever from that enslaving fear of death. As it says next, Jesus didn't come to save angels, but to aid the children of Abraham. Angels aren't mortal. They don't die like we do. Jesus was not born of a woman for angels, but he did suffer death for you and all the offspring of Abraham. By suffering, Jesus forever forever altered the character of our deaths. When we die, it is no longer a condemnation from the Father. Death for us is not a subtraction or curse, or even an everlasting separation. Rather, as it says elsewhere, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be away from the body is to be with the Lord in heaven. In the words of Revelation, our death has been made our first resurrection as our spirits rise to God. By the death and anxiety of Jesus, he then imparts to you peace and comfort on your deathbed. This is the amazing salvation from death and anxiety that is yours freely through faith. For after all, the children of Abraham are those who are related by faith to Jesus Christ. Thus, by tasting death for you, Christ is your comfort in life and in death, in this life and the next, that you belong body and soul to your precious Savior. Jesus pioneered our salvation by passing through death to bring you through the grave to glory. And because he became like you in flesh and blood, Jesus now stands on high to call you his brothers and sisters, and to lead us in songs of praise. Thus, let us hide ourselves in the consolation, the freedom, and the victory of Jesus Christ. And with Christ as our worship conductor, may we ever sing his praises and glory 
forever. Amen. Let's pray.